From ancient Greek philosophy to modern avant-garde art, we might be coaxed to view death as a friend we can smile at. But I think most of us know that death is no joke. Is death a blessing or a curse? Our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, takes us to Romans 5, 12 to 21, and the Apostle Paul's response to the fact of death. A lot of you know that I was a chemistry major, but I was also a biology major. One of the things we did in biology class, in fact, it's really the worst exam that we had. We would dissect all these things. How many of you have ever gone through those anatomy classes? And then you go through those exams where you have to go from one station to the next. Remember that? And you've got to figure out what slide is which and which part of the anatomy the pin is in. I liked working with the math of chemistry, and I liked doing the theoretical stuff. And I had one of my good buddies do a lot of the lab work. But biology was, to me, just a bunch of memorization. But to be honest with you, deep, deep in my soul, I do kind of get into a little bit. So I, I couldn't resist going to the Gunther von Hagen's Plastination Exhibit. How many of you went to that when it was here in Dallas? Well, you go to this body works, it's kind of like going to medical school. This gives you the opportunity to be able to see what all those medical students go through in their first year. As you go through the exhibit, it'll cure you of smoking because they'll show you what a good lung looks like and then they'll show you what a series of really bad lungs look like. It'll show you what a good heart looks like and then it'll show you what a bad heart looks like. And so one of the purposes that Von Hagen had in sharing this exhibit was to motivate us towards living a healthy life. But I noticed up on the wall that it had all these different philosophers. A lot of them were, from, were Greek philosophers, like Epictetus, who was a Stoic. And basically, Epictetus taught us that you need to just realize that you're going to live under the sun. You need to get your passions under control. And basically, you know, death is really not your enemy. It's a natural part of life. And so you need to just flow with that. To be fair, von Hagen's also had some quotes from Augustine, for example, who's a very strong, committed theologian back in the third century, really committed to Christ and the fountainhead of a lot of the understanding of the book of Romans that we've been sharing with you. So I got to be fair, they did kind of present both sides. But as Mary and I left the exhibit, the overall idea of this, of this body world exhibit is that death is your friend and that you can basically smile at that. Damien Hurst came out with his latest work of art, and I wanted to show that to you. There it is. This was unveiled early in June, and you say, well, Dave, what in the world is this? Let, let me just read to you what it is. This is his latest work. He's kind of the bad boy of English art. You say, Dave, what is that? It's a 35-year-old European male, and it's embedded with 8,601 diamonds, ladies. 8,601 diamonds. If you want to purchase this, it's worth, uh, let's see, it is worth $98 million. I asked Damien what his purpose, what he, like, do you look at this work of art? They asked him, what do you want us to get out of this? And Damien responded, I hope this work gives people hope. Now, doesn't that give you hope? I hope that this work of art gives you hope lifting. Take your breath away. Well, you know, to be honest with you, you look at this, I want you to laugh a little bit, but I also want you to stop and think, this is what your modern culture is asking you to do with death. As Americans, it's asking you to realize that the idea that a diamond is forever. One of the things that Damien is showing you is that diamonds really aren't forever. 
And that diamond really can't keep a woman going forever and ever. Because one of the ironies of this is who cares when you're a skull? And by the way, those are the real teeth. He kept the real teeth of the skull. But I want you to think about what this says about where a lot of your friends are living. We are fascinated with death in our culture. You know, you have teenagers in the Gothic culture. And Goth, it's really a, a medieval culture. And remember the Gothic large cathedrals. So be careful not just to equate it with death. And yet there does seem to be a major stress upon a fascination with the darkness and with the power of death. If you're raising young teenagers, if they move up in the middle school, they start going to high school, how many of you remember when you started being fascinated with ghost stories? You've all had those times around the campfire where somebody just scared you to death, and you remember the first time of horror flicks and all the, the fear of death. One of the things that starts to happen in a culture, when you start to live for pleasure and you start to live for excitement, you start on a pathway where you start moving toward becoming fascinated with death. If you think about what's the dominant show on big network TV, tell me. What's the dominant show on big network TV? And it's, it's just spawned one show after another, CSI. What is CSI about? Who's the prime character in CSI? A dead person. And that's what starts to happen in the culture. Your culture, I want you to stop and think of it as your culture is fascinated with death. Let me just switch gears a little bit. The story that you believe about reality, about beginnings, about history, about the human race, the story that you believe will determine the way that you live. In the dominant story that's told about human origins and told about how you got here, is the basic idea is that there were all these millions of years of development, and I'm going to start way down the line after millions and millions of years, where you start having primates. And those primates were the results of tree shrews coming out of trees, and they come down, and then they develop all different parts. In different parts of the world, like for example in Asia, there were some ancient not homo sapiens, but homo erectus, which means man that's standing. These tree shoes begin to walk. They develop over a thousand of years. And death, 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 death. But in this development of death, there are those that progress a little bit. And so in Asia, you have the progression towards homo sapiens. The idea in basic modern anthropology is that life really began, our race, homo sapiens, begins in Africa. And so you have a development of, from Homo erectus, you start having, uh, you know, Homo sapiens that have a much bigger skull. And after millions and millions and millions of deaths, you eventually produce someone that is part of your race. But I want you to realize that the dominant story, it's a story that all you kids will be taught in, in, at UT or even at A&M and even at Baylor University going to be taught that this is a hands-down reality. This is just true. You're also going to be taught that Neanderthal, who is very dominant in northern Europe, and he's a different strain, and then he was conquered by the Homo sapiens for some reasons that we don't know exactly. And then now we're all part of the same genus called Homo sapiens. And that's a dominant view, and it's actually taught. In fact, even in Christian circles when I say, well, are you sure that that story is true? 
I'll be laughed. Like, if I was a biologist and I said that I doubt the story that I just told you, I will instantly be labeled as a bigot. I will instantly be labeled as someone that's as bad as the, the churchmen that were resisting Galileo. As if it's exactly the same argument that when you're looking through a telescope and you're putting Copernicus's equations together with what Galileo's observation is, that's exactly the same thing as what we're doing in the development of the human race. And I would just say that I think you need to think long and hard because I don't think those are exactly parallel. There's a lot of observations that are made about in Leahy, uh, Leakey's works and in, in the development of human, of human origins. But today, I'm, I don't want to get into all this, but I want, you to, I want you to see the power of a story. The basic idea in the modern evolutionary stories about the origin of death is that death is your friend. In other words, death is the normal part, and it's been present for millions upon millions of years. And it's what enables the human race to go farther. As you give it up and you become part of the dust, then the force of evolution, and evolution never really talked about, well, what is that driving force? What is it that gives life its drive towards progress? Why doesn't it just all implode? So our modern cosmology, our modern story about the origin of man, what I want you to stop and think about is it's a powerful story. Millions upon millions of people in the world are influenced by that story. And I want you to realize that it's a reign of death. Death, for an evolutionist, is a friend. It's not an enemy. And it's the way that things have always been. And it's something that we should accept. What I want you to ask yourself is, do you believe that that's the truth? Because I'm going to give you an alternative today. I'm not saying that you need to close your mind... In fact, I'm going to tell you to open your mind. Galileo, that was the progenitor of all modern science in many ways, and Roger Bacon, who in my field of chemistry started it all in a very powerful way, they're both committed believers. They believed amazing grace. Jesus died on the cross. It hadn't been written yet, but they believed in Jesus dying on the cross and Jesus rising up from the dead. They weren't fighting with Jesus being the author of a new life. And they really actually did their science because they believed that God created the world and therefore there was, there was reason in it and there was, there was consistency in it, though there was a twist in it because of the curse of death. And so science actually developed out of the Western world and not in the Eastern world because Christianity had given such a dominant influence that Western monks were no longer afraid of nature and no longer saw it as being weird gods and goddesses, but they viewed it as part of the handiwork of their creator. And I want you to know that they adored death. So what I want you to understand that they adored the life that Jesus could give and they didn't adore death. So Paul in Romans chapter five is going to tell us a different story. And I believe that deep in your soul that a lot of you know that this, you know, Hearst view of smiling at death is not a good joke. How many of you really smile at death? How many of you this morning think death is really a good friend? When you hear of more troops dying in Iraq, do you think that's a, a good thing? Is the sorrow that a family goes through and the loss of a young Marine or a young uh, Army officer, is that a good thing? No. What do you intuitively know when you experience death? That you should mourn. 
And one of the things I want you to realize about your modern culture is that your culture tells you they're afraid to mourn. We make it really quick. San Francisco is one of the most progressive cities there is. It's a city where individualism rules and reigns. Do you know that there are no graveyards in all of San Francisco proper? In fact, they actually bulldozed one of them and built a big commercial center over it. There are no graveyards in the whole city of San Francisco. Graveyards have to be outside the city. Why is that? Because if you're just going to live for now, and if you're just going to live for what this life can bring, and if you're going to be fun city where the individual can do what they want, you don't want people going to a graveyard, and you drive by, and you have to come to grips and face with, hey, this is coming. What then? So turn to Romans chapter 5, because I just sketched a little bit about some of the factors, the power of death and the fascination with death in our, in our culture today. The Apostle Paul talks in a completely different way, and he's bringing his argument that started in Romans chapter 1, chapter 1, 18 through the end of chapter 1. The Apostle Paul talked to us about us Gentiles. And basically he talked about the fact that, that our race started with Adam, and in Romans chapter 1, he, he really assumes that there's solidarity in the human race. If you're an evolutionist, and I want you to know that historically, that what we call a meta-narrative or a grand narrative, it led in the 1900s, for example, it led into gross racism. For example, the Asians, the Japanese, for example, were not viewed as high on the evolutionary ladder as Englishmen. If you look at how Darwinianism develops, you'll look at the different depictions in the art. It's a good way to tell what people think. And that's where that philosophy leads. You're not a solidarity of human race. My own mother-in-law asked me a week ago, she said, what about, where did all the different races come from? If I was a modern evolution, I would say, well, mom, there was a homo sapien that developed over in Asia, and they developed the Asian culture. There's another homo sapien that after millions of years developed from the primates and became the African race, and that's why they have dark skin. And, and then in northern Europe, there developed another strain of homo sapiens. What does that mean? It means I'm not connected with somebody from Asia. They're not even in my brotherhood at all. You might think that's science well, I want you to know that every scientist has to interpret the facts, and I want you to know that, that those facts led to some mighty bad, cruel deeds. Someone like Hitler didn't believe in the solidarity of the human race. That's why he could kill Jews, because they weren't the homo sapiens that produced the Aryans, what he called the Aryans. The Apostle Paul claimed something totally different. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5 is going to tell us that we're all sons of... Everybody tell me. You're all sons and daughters of... Tell me real loud. You're all sons and daughters of Adam. So wherever you go in the world, you're with your fellow. That's right. You're with fellow human beings. Now, I want us to begin the first half of what Paul says is we're a solidarity in Adam. And you say, well, Dave, how do I know there's a solidarity in Adam? If you are a scientist, one of the things that you can really nail down, and you can do it this afternoon, open up the paper to the obituary section of the Dallas Morning News this afternoon, and you ask yourself, do poor people die in Dallas? Do Asian Americans die in Dallas? Do Hispanic people die? Do African Americans die? Do Caucasians die? Do young and old die? You can go anywhere in the world and there is, in the paper, there is a obituary section. 
Why is that? Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world, and I want you to see right away the connection between sin and something else. Just as sin entered the world through one man. Who do you think that one man is? Through one man, Adam, and what came as a result of sin? And death through sin. So according to Paul, why is there death in the world? Is it just a natural part of the way the creation was supposed to be? No, it isn't. And you need to think really hard about this. The Apostle Paul is saying that something has gone amok in God's created order. Something is amiss in the garden. The God that we're introduced to in Genesis chapter 1 is a God not that does experiments for thousands upon thousands of years. And I want to get it really clear that as a, if you're a biologist, I want you to do really good biology. But really good science doesn't just tell meta-narratives and get mad at someone that attacks the grand story. And I want you to understand something that, that you need to think really hard when you're in the classroom. What are they teaching me about death? What do they want me to believe about death? And you say, well, Dave, you know, I, I think you should just accept science. Well, the most dominant view in intellectualism today is that you don't accept views. That you understand that everybody has a power game. I have a power game. I'm trying to influence you this morning. And I try to be really upfront with you what my power game is. I'm going to tell you what my power game is. I really believe Jesus has the answers. I believe Jesus has been in the farthest, as the east is from the west. I think he's the only human being that covers all the bases. He's been to the farthest point in the galaxy. And I was taught in science that unless you get all the facts in, you can't be sure of your hypothesis. And I'm following the one man that got all the facts in. Amen? I really believe that. I believe Jesus knows all about what Charles Darwin would write in the middle 1800s. I think he knew it before the foundation of the world. And I also look at Charles Darwin's life. And I think Jesus knew all about it. And I got to make a decision. Am I going to follow Darwin or am I going to follow Jesus? It doesn't mean that I don't do good science, but it means that I understand what Pascal, the great French scientist, understood. You got to decide who you're going to follow, who you're going to believe. And I've lived long enough now to find out that a lot of guys that I really believed when I was 20 years of age, I thought they were such great minds. I found out now that they're idiots. Their whole belief system, in fact, I found out that they were mad because a young student came up in their class and, and countered what they taught for years, and what they taught for years has now disappeared. And if I would have trusted them, it would have all evaporated. What Paul is saying isn't going to evaporate. It's saying, Dave, death isn't a normal thing for human beings. It's become the normal thing because of a moral issue. And death came to the world because of sin. Now, Paul's going to develop this. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. There's been a lot of debate in the history of theology about the idea of sinning in Adam. I want you to understand that the Apostle Paul doesn't really go into a long discussion about how our sin was passed from Adam to Cain to Abel to Seth and down through. It doesn't give us a, a, like a moral biological chart of how that all happened. And theologians have argued that. Paul's point is really more general. What he's saying is, look at the facts. 
as we read the history of the Bible, we find out that God started out with an innocent couple that were not controlled by sin, that didn't live in the realm of sin, that weren't under the dominion of sin. God gave them one simple command, and the very first thing they do is to break that command, and God told them when they did it, they would surely die. In Genesis chapter 4, the first son of Adam and Eve murders his brother. And if you're a scientist, you need to look at the facts, look at what's happening. What it's saying is, what would you conclude? Adam and Eve sin, and the very first progeny they have murders his brother. What's become evident in the human race? Sin. And what the Apostle Paul is going to argue is that even when there isn't a direct command from the Lord, like don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then like the Ten Commandments, the Apostle Paul has said it that sin had become a power that's in the world. That's what he's talking about. He's saying that when Adam sinned, the human race sins, which shows that we have the nature of Adam. It's passed on to us. I also want you guys to realize, like in Jewish theology, guess who they blame sin on? Can anybody guess in rabbinic Jewish theology? Who do you think they blame sin on? Eve. Tell me real loud. Eve. So before you say that the Bible is a real chauvinistic book, it was Jewish theology in rabbinic, in reaction to Christianity, that said the problem is Eve. The Bible says, no, the problem isn't Eve. The problem is Adam. Because he was the responsible head of that home that was irresponsible. And he's the one that really plunged the human race into this domain and reign of terror called death. Which, by the way, as husbands, we've been doing ever since. If you follow your natural instincts, you'll abuse your wife or you'll be passive and you won't lead your wife. And most deeply in your heart, you won't do what God wants you to do. You won't be the godly man that you need to be. You'll be like Adam. You'll be passive. You won't say anything when you really should stand up for what your family should do. All that's part of this. And I want you to see that the Bible from the very beginning says Adam was the one that brought death into the human race. He brought death into the human race because he sinned. Now, Paul didn't develop this. In verse 13, he wants us to get a feel for this reign of death. And he talks to us about the law that he's been talking to us about in Romans chapter 2. And he's going to come back to it in Romans chapter 7 in a really fun, difficult chapter that we'll look at a little bit later. Look at verse 13. Before the law was given, sin was in the world. So you don't have to have a direct command from God in order for there to be sin. Sin isn't just directly disobeying a very clear command from God. Sin is a spirit of rebellion. It's it's an atmosphere. It's a controlling power in Paul's thinking. And what the Apostle Paul is going to argue here is that even though from Adam until Moses, God didn't give the human race these specific commands, they still die, showing us that the power of sin is operative. And his point is to show you that what the law actually does is to expose our guiltiness, and it also increases the guiltiness of those who disobey God's law. Let's read that, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. It says, nevertheless, death reigned, verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam until the time of Moses. From the time of Adam, that Adam, like Moses, had a direct command from God, he disobeyed it. Then those that followed from Adam, according to Paul, didn't have 
direct moral commands that were written out or directly spoken to them. We did learn in Romans 2 that we have our conscience within and God is speaking internally, but not an external code like Moses gave. But he says, even over those who did not sin by breaking command. The idea here is sin is still producing death, still controlling, even under those who from the time of Adam to the time of Moses didn't break the command, who was a pattern, as Adam did, who was a pattern of the one who was to come. Now, this is the idea. Paul's idea is this. There's ways in which here we have Adam and here we have Jesus. Now, you need to follow him. The Apostle Paul is saying that there is a connection between Adam and there's a connection with Christ. Does that make sense? Now, what you need to follow is the ways in which Jesus is related to Adam. Paul's going to tell us that Adam is a typos. He is a, he is a pattern. He's a form of what should come. And the basic idea the Apostle Paul wants you to see is Adam started our race. All of you, according to the Bible, are related. And according to the Bible, you're all sons of Adam, which means you're all sinners, contrary to modern thinking. And second of all, the way that you can know that you're all sinners is you all die. So if you're a scientist, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, one thing you can objectively nail down is, hey, we all die. What's troubling is why do we die? And Paul is telling us why we die is because of our sin, that we live in a moral universe, and when you choose to walk away from the author of life and disobey him, you walk into a realm of death. That's what he's saying. Now look at verse 15 and following. Now we're going to talk to us about, as an Adam, a reign of terror controlled by sin produces death. Now let's talk about what happens in Christ. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one. Now here's the idea. Adam sins and what's been true in the human race ever since except for a very few minor exceptions. Like Elijah and Enoch. Everybody dies. So one man sins. And then Paul is saying because all have sinned, we've all been sinned. So you have many, many, many transgressions. And it's producing many, many, many deaths, right? So one man sins, he dies, and then the whole human race is dying. And Paul is saying that every one of you have sinned with Adam. Like Adam, you sin. How many of you have ever sinned? Anybody ever sinned here? Anyone that's never sinned, please stand up now and declare it. And how many of you realize that it's objectively true I could die because of that? Yeah, that's what Paul is saying. Now... That's the realm that people that haven't trusted Jesus, that's the realm they live in. Now, let's talk about the other realm real quickly. The apostle said, but the gift, and this is Paul reminded us, that we, it's not something we earn. It's going to be something that God just freely bestows to us. Is not like the false step. And the word trespass, instead of a word that means uh, transgressing against the law, the idea is even from Adam to Moses, they still made false, false steps. They tended to get off the pathway. They did things that were morally wrong, that contradicted their conscience, and therefore they died. But the gift is not like the trespass or the false step. For if the many die, that's all of us, I could say, but all of Midlothian Bible Church and everybody living in our area and everybody living all over the world, down through the centuries, they all died by the trespass of the one man, Adam. And this is the great good news. How much more then did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, 
overflow to the many. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Adam plunges all into sin, and his one sin produces many sins, which brings all of us into condemnation under God. That's what we've learned in Romans 1.18 and following. For all of sinning comes sure the glory of God. They all face God's judgment. But the good news is this. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. What would you expect God to do with the human race? Adam sins. He produces a whole human race where everybody sins. There's millions upon millions upon millions of sins. What should happen now to the human race? Those of you that are just people, you're judicial people, what should happen to us? You see the power of that? The world is filled. How many sins do you think took place this past week in the world? And what should a righteous, holy God... See, we have the idea that God's some mean ogre and that we're the good guys. That's a bunch of baloney. Just in this room, look at the sins that we've done this week. The Bible tells you point blank. If you have something against your brother, you need to go and talk to them directly before you talk to anybody else. I'm not going to ask you, but how many of you haven't done that this week? It was much more juicy to go and talk to another believer and say, I have a prayer request I want to share with you. And so you gossip. That's a sin. The wage of the sin is death. Just in Midlothian Bible Church, we got enough to put us all away. So what Paul is arguing, and that's why I want you to see this amazing grace, because there's been many, many sins, and there's been many sins in some of your lives, and one of the biggest lies that sin can tell you is, well, God looks at your many sins, and so he's going to condemn you forever. And that's what he says. What Romans says is, God looks at your many sins, and he's furious because he's just. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against your sin. But what Paul just told us is, but God gave his son to produce justification, declare you righteous. That's his point. He's saying, but the gift followed many trespasses. And you can put your own name. The gift followed my many trespasses, and it brought my declaration that I was right before God because he, he gave his son to die for me. That's the picture here. For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, you might say, death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? So here's the choice. Jesus dies. He takes the rap for all of these sins that all of us sons and daughters of Adam have done. Jesus takes all the penalty. And the argument is, if death reigned over here, how much more shall life reign over here? Now, Damien Hurst is telling you that you, if you put diamonds in your skull, you can smile at death. How many of you buy that? Over here, you got a new Adam. He's the only man that I ever know that in all of human history that faced our enemy. He's only, like, I go to graveyards all the time. I, I go to where we put the body down. Where they lower, after you all leave, you know, they let everybody, in our culture, we let everybody leave. I think it'd be really good, have us all stay around. In the Hispanic culture, when I do a funeral in the, in the Hispanic culture, they all hang around. They, they help. 
because they're, they're realizing if they're born-again believers, my brothers and sisters in that culture that really know Jesus, some of them right here in our church, it's a time of rejoicing because they realize that the body's going to be committed to the grave, but we're waiting for the great coming of Jesus. And so I've been with my Hispanic brothers and sisters that when they lose someone that they know Jesus, then they'll sing about the coming of the Lord and the incredible power of Jesus to bring you in life. Now, which kingdom do you want to be a part of? Over here or over here? Who wants to be over here? So Paul closes this paragraph. Let me read it to you really quickly. Just consequently, just as a result of one trespass brought condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness, when Jesus did the one act of obedience on the cross, that was the act of righteousness, and that brings justification or the, the ability for God to declare us right before him, and that justification brings life for all men. That's why we go to Zambia. That's why we go to Indonesia. We have a universal good news, just as universal as the universal domain of death. We've got a universal reign of life. For justice through the disobedience of the one man, that would be the one man, Adam, the many, uh, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law was added. We're going to come back to this in, verse, in chapter 7, but we'll just introduce it here. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. In other words, when Moses gave the law, it exposes the hidden power of sin and makes it objective for us. But the Jews believe that the giving the Mosaic law gave them salvation. Paul argues against it. It says, no, the law is an MRI that exposes how guilty you are. It doesn't bring you life. It brings you the condemnation of death that leads you to Jesus. But where sin, in other words, when Moses gave the law, sin increased. One of the things we'll learn is that if you don't have a law, you'll sin. With my teenagers, if I don't tell them anything, they'll have kids over at our house when they're unsupervised. Like Josh, my son, have been being really objective. If I never tell Josh, because I don't even think about it, don't sneak out at night because that's a wrong thing. Josh will sneak out at night when he was a teenager, not now, Lord willing. But if Mary and Dave, like Mary found out about it, and she said, now, Josh, whatever you do, don't sneak out of the house. We want you, when you go to bed at night, don't you sneak out of the house. When Mary and I give him the rule, is it going to increase or decrease Josh's sneaking out at night if he's not living under Christ, but he's living under Adam? It increases. In fact, it actually suddenly becomes a lot more fun to sneak out at night. That's what Paul is saying. The law, instead of being a, a means of power that brings us salvation, it brings us under greater condemnation because now we are disobeying direct command from the Lord. But here's the good news. But where sin increased, God's grace increased all the more. So just as sin reigned in death, so also now grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what our whole church is about. You're either this morning, and as you go out this week, you're under the reign of death. In fact, Paul is telling us that right now, all of us are in Adam. And you say, oh, how do I know I've been in Adam? Because we all sin, and Paul's right on and objective about that reality. He's also right on, he's saying that death is not just a natural part of human existence. It is the curse, it's the judgment because of our sin and therefore we all die. You can, you can just read the paper today and find out that's true. 
Jesus comes to me, and this is what I want you to get across. I want to make sure that every one of you believe it, but I also want you to pass it around to your friends. I want you to be really clear. I want you to understand that what Paul is saying is that Jesus has come as a new Adam. He wants to start a whole new race that instead of being under the reign of terror, they ask Jesus to forgive them based upon the cross and based upon the power of the resurrection. And this is what happens to you when you're born again. I don't care if you were 5, if you were 12, if you were 20, if you were 85. The moment you put your faith, remember we learned that just shall live by faith. The moment you say, Jesus, I admit to you that I'm a son of Adam under the reign of terror and under the reign of death, I want to come under the reign of life. The moment you admit your sin to Jesus and let Jesus come to live inside of you, you became part of a new race. Paul calls it the new man. And what I want you to realize is that's the basis of your salvation. You still have the effects as you live your everyday life. If you want to, you can carry this old corpse of an old nature around with you, and that's why you wrestle with the laws of sin and death. We're going to be talking about that through the rest of the book. But Paul wants you to nail it down at this point. The way that we overcome the effects of Adam in our life that produces our sin is by just receiving the gift of Jesus coming to live in our life. So if you've truly been born again, that's what the word born again means, is that you were born anew. You received this Christ nature. And that's how we know we're going to make it because I'm no longer a son just of Adam. I'm a son of Adam. That means I'm still living in my physical body. I still wrestle with sin. But the true identity now of Dave Wurtson is now I'm not just a son of Adam, but I become a son of Jesus. And he generates a new race of people that are no longer under the reign of death, but they're under the reign of life. Does that make sense? Isn't that incredible good news? That is the most incredible, distinctive good news that you'll ever, ever hear. And I want you to get really excited about it. I want you to, is everybody clear about that? Because what I want you to hear is you're going to hear a ton of stuff. Like over here, over here under the reign of terror and the reign of death, you're going to hear all kinds, you're going to have possibility thinkers tell you about the possibility of being a skull with diamonds in it. And how you can, you can be worth $98 million. But if you live long enough, you're going to eventually realize that all that positive thinking just made you a, a diamond-encrusted skeleton. I don't want that for any of you. Some of you are going to try to build houses, and you're going to feel like, well, this will make me feel alive. And you'll sit in your brand-new house, which is a marvelous thing to have. It's a great thing if you receive it from a gift from the Lord. But if you're saying, this will be the diamond that makes me alive... You're going to eventually be sitting in a house and realize this doesn't do anything for me. I'm just a skeleton. I don't have any life. And that's why I don't want you to live for those things. I don't want you to be enamored by it. Hearst gave us a really powerful picture of the nuttiness, of the craziness of our material existence outside of Jesus. Because it's stupid to smile with diamonds all encrusted in your skull. Who cares? Jesus doesn't say that a woman's best friend, diamonds are forever. Jesus says, I'm forever. And one day I'm going to pave the streets with gold 
and I used gems like diamonds as the, the wall coating. It's the way I drywall. God drywalls heavens with precious stone. That's the picture we have in his word. For living people, not skulls. That's what I covet for every one of you. I want you to this morning to realize I am no longer part of the reign of terror, the reign of death. But by just receiving this incredible gift, Jesus, when he should have condemned me, when all the sins piled up against me, Jesus said, with his Father and with his Spirit, I'm going to give my life for them instead. And I'm going to completely pay for all those many, many sins. And when Jesus died and rose again, he made a whole new race become possible. And that's what I covet. Father, I just pray that none of us this morning will live in the reign of terror. Help us to live in the reign of life. I pray that you would use Paul's picture to us this morning of life or really death in Adam and eternal life in Jesus to make it even more clear the incredible, incredible, amazing grace that Jesus has poured out for us because he died and rose again. I want to ask you, Lord, I just close by just praying. I just pray that my brothers and sisters, they will leave here. When they listen to other teachers, when they listen even in other churches as they're exposed to different types of teaching, I pray that they will not just respond to it naively, but I pray that they'll ask themselves, what am I hearing? Who am I being challenged to trust? I thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that you tell us that the origin of death is something that started because of Adam's sin, but you have the answer for it. And help us to never think that death is a normal part of human existence, and it's the way that you created it to eternally be. I thank you, Lord, that we're heading towards a kingdom. We're heading towards a reign where death will no longer rule. And oh, Lord Jesus, I just pray that that day would come very, very soon when that last enemy of death is destroyed, when you come back for us. Thank you that our loved ones are home with you, I thank you that we don't need to be afraid. And I thank you that our hope is not just some nebulous hope, but it is confident trust in what Jesus did for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Dot com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.